KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. The vicarious trauma in the wake of another police brutality video. There are other ways of us honoring and recognizing life besides watching the death. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. NAMI is running a new shelter for women. What makes this really unique, though, is that we have staff on site all night. So if, even if we have the space available, a bed available, somebody can come in at 3 o'clock in the morning and they won't be turned away. And the new way San Diego is looking at towing cars, plus a conversation with San Diego's new poet laureate. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right, let's geek out together about the things we love. Many of us spent recent days thinking about the life of a man we never met and yet, particularly for Black people, know very well. Tyree Nichols was our sons, brothers, fathers, and husbands. Before releasing video of five Memphis police officers repeatedly beating and kicking him until he was unconscious and later died, Memphis Police Chief Sarah Davis said she expected us to, quote, feel what the Nichols family feels. While the grief, anger, sadness, and despair will never match that of a mother who lost her child, psychologists say all of us can experience vicarious trauma when we bear witness by watching what happened to Tyree Nichols and countless others like him. Joining me now to talk about this is Tama Bryant, Ph.D. President of the American Psychological Association, and Dr. Bryant Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Uh, Did you watch the video? I chose not to watch it. And I also recommend it for people to take pause before feeling like just because it's available, they have to watch it. I think some people felt that they owed it. Uh, to Tyree or owed it to the Black community to watch, but there are other ways of us honoring and recognizing life besides watching the death. You know, what are the psychological effects of watching videos like this one? 
it really can overwhelm our nervous system. So when we think about traumatic stress, uh, that is a deeper level than ordinary everyday stress. So we all carry different roles and responsibilities that can create some level of strain for us. But when we talk about vicarious trauma or other types of trauma, those are the experiences that overwhelm our usual capacity to cope, that they can disrupt us, uh, and dysregulate our nervous system. They can uh, really overwhelm us emotionally, can show up even in our physical bodies. And so once you have the visual as well as the audio to go with it, uh, that can really create a space for more flashbacks and intrusive thoughts where you are replaying that image. Um, and I remember hearing uh, Tyree's mother in an interview say she started to watch it, but once she heard her son say, what did I do? Uh, she had to stop. And so then, of course, what continues to ring in her mind is both the what did I do, which she also witnessed seeing his body in the aftermath. And so we want to be uh, careful about the images and sounds that we are holding on to. And we're talking about uh, vicarious trauma more. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So uh, what we understand is even if you are not the direct target of a trauma, bearing witness to it or having uh, someone who is connected to you experience it can also be disruptive and overwhelming for you. So if we're talking about bearing witness, it could be that you were physically present when something happened, but also with social media and all of the various recordings, even watching it uh, online or on uh, television. I remember at the time of 9-11, uh, we would caution people to not keep having uh, the replay of the airplanes going into the buildings and then children are in the room and there is... Uh, an impact to that, even if you were not uh, the direct target. You know, is this vicarious trauma in this case uh, elevated when we think of that brutality happening to ourselves or our black sons, husbands, and fathers? Yes, there is a deeper level of connection when it's not only that I have compassion because this is another human being, but it is another human being who shares my identity. And in many of these cases uh, was the, the targeting and treatment of this person is connected to their identity. And so that creates um, a, a deeper level of connection and also a concern uh, of will I be safe? And so whenever we see um, the, the large-scale violence um, against African Americans, Black Americans, Latinos, uh, Asian Americans, uh, Indigenous peoples. Uh, we can consider what stress people end up holding around their own survival and the safety and survival of their community. Hmm, that is interesting. Uh, what advice do you have for people whose mental health is being impacted from watching the video? I would first say the importance of giving ourselves compassion uh, as opposed to judgment. Sometimes people are hard on themselves and they say, I don't know why I'm so upset I didn't even know him. 
And so to really respond to yourself with understanding, to know it makes sense and it's a part of our uh, humanity to grieve or be outraged about the violation of another person and then also the violation of the entire community. And so after that compassion and and uh, kind of releasing self-judgment, um, I would say we want to think about both self-care and community care. So self-care, sometimes we're neglecting ourselves or we throw ourselves into our work. And so taking time to rest, uh, journaling can be helpful for some, use of the expressive arts, uh, listening to music, writing poetry, moving our bodies because we're holding stress in the body, uh, reaching out and making an appointment with your therapist, uh, talking with family and friends is the part that's the community support so that we don't have to be isolated. So uh, there are a number of mental health organizations, including uh, the Association of Black Psychologists uh, that offer free uh, drop-in support groups or healing circles. And so uh, making use of whether individual or group support can really uh, be a, a gift to your mental health. And then I want to name that justice is therapeutic. And we want to be mindful to not just tell people they should meditate and drink water and then not address the systemic issues. So we want to care for ourselves and nourish ourselves. And then in our different ways and our different disciplines and walks of life to be intentional about continuing to commit our efforts to eradicating racism and eradicating violence and looking towards uh, prevention because those things are very important for our wholeness and wellness. And Dr. Bryant, that leads me to my next question. I mean, is there a balance between being informed, uh, the fight for justice, and uh, preserving our mental health in all this? Yes, it's very important that we pace ourselves. And what I like to share with our communities is uh, that common phrase of this being a marathon, right? Not a sprint. So sometimes we are neglecting ourselves and saying we just have to work to make things right. And that strategy could work if we could fix this in a week, right? That for a week, I'm going to you know, forget about what I need and just work for justice. But instead, you know, this uh, work of being a change agent and advocate and activist, uh, this is really uh, lifelong. And so we need to pace ourselves. And I think that common phrase of rest, but don't quit. And so our rest and our care is a part of the process I think uh, Tricia Hersey has a book called Rest as Resistance so that we can know in a country where for Black people, um, our labor became the equivalent of our worth. Like literally you had to work nonstop to be uh, worthwhile or to be worthy. And so it's a radical revolutionary act to say, I am enough that I do not have to be in perpetual motion, always grinding, 
uh, always uh, trying to uh, prove my humanity, but instead our rest is a part of resistance. Our joy is a part of resistance, which is why I love that some of the protest march, you'll see people breaking out in the electric slide and dancing and singing. Uh, so uh, our outrage is understandable and we are deserving of more in our lives than our rage. And so uh, having that joy, um, loving relationship, loving community, those are also intentional ways that we protect our wholeness. I've been speaking with Dr. Tama Bryant, president of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Bryant, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you are welcome. Thanks for having me. A new shelter opened last week on the site of the former San Diego Downtown Library. The temporary women's shelter is the culmination of a years-long process to reuse the former library space, which has been closed since 2013. The 36-bed shelter is being run by the National Alliance on Mental Illness for San Diego and Imperial Counties. And NAMI CEO Catherine Nicario joins me now. Catherine, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about how the city could best use the old downtown library space. Why was a temporary shelter for women chosen for this site? We believe it's been chosen for this site because it's really in the heart of where we're seeing a lot of individuals experiencing homelessness. Women in particular are very vulnerable when they're experiencing homelessness and living on the streets. So just to the proximity of where there's a, a higher population of those who are un unhoused, it really made it the perfect location for us to be in. So can you tell us more about the shelter? How do people access the new shelter and what services are available? Sure. So the shelter is going to be able to house 36 women or anybody who identifies as female every night. Our doors will open around 4.30 in the afternoon. There is a fenced outside patio. So it's basically first come, first serve. What makes this really unique, though, is that we have staff on site all night. So if, even if we have a space available, a bed available, somebody can come in at three o'clock in the morning and they won't be turned away. That's great. And, and can you talk about NAMI's role in being a shelter provider? I mean, is this something that's new for the organization in San Diego? What's that process been like? This is a first for NAMI San Diego to be operating a shelter in downtown San Diego, but it really makes sense for us to do. We uh, truly firmly believe that anybody who has been experiencing homelessness, there is a level of trauma associated with that. There are high levels of anxiety and depression. And what makes us a really great partnership is that we also operate a clubhouse that's called a specialty clubhouse for those experiencing homelessness down on 16th and Imperial. So what the city was able to provide for us was a van. So women during the day, because the shelter is closed during the day, you have to be exited by 8 a.m. We can, if they're willing and wanted to, we can transport them down to our clubhouse where we have showers five days a week. We have commercial laundry facilities. We have hot meals. We also have case management, and that's a big component of this project. And we have homeless outreach workers that are absolutely amazing at what they do and getting anybody who's experiencing homelessness into services, building that level of trust to engage them into the process of exiting homelessness. So we are, we are able to really marry a couple of our programs together 
because of their proximity and using what we deem as peer support specialists, those with lived experience, who maybe have experienced homelessness before themselves and are our staff members. So they've walked this journey in the past. They can identify and empathize and be there for a person and say, you know, I've been where you are. And that's very powerful for somebody to have that recognition and have them being seen as truly a person that You know, we're all pretty much one step away from that at any given moment in time. But now we are also here to assist and help. And the new facility, as you mentioned, is a 36-bed shelter. Why was that the right size? And and could the facility handle greater capacity at some point? Uh, The way that they did the the lobby of the old Central Library, uh, per fire marshal, we are capped at 36 beds. And just, just for the sheer size of the location. There's also no indoor plumbing. So uh, we do have ADA accessible porta potties and hand washing stations that are on the outside. So the rate limiting factor is really just the physical size of the space. Mm, okay. And there, there were some hurdles for this shelter to get up and running. As we mentioned, the space has been closed for nearly a decade now. Can you talk a little about what it took to make this a reality? I tell you, that was definitely um, a big heavy lift on the part of the city, and they did a a phenomenal job. There was apparently some deed restrictions and a covenant that was set in place um, many, many, many decades ago when the building was gifted to the community. So those had to be lifted and released. And then the city actually had to come in and build this new area in the portion of the lobby of the old library. And one thing I have to say is they did a phenomenal job because you walk in, it's light, it's bright, it's clean, it's inviting. So really a place where somebody could feel comfortable and safe. And, you know, we spoke recently with Bob McElroy, who is CEO of the Alpha Project, another shelter provider in the area. He criticized the city's approach to working with shelter providers and really was calling for providers to be involved earlier in the planning process. How has NAMI's experience been with the city? I mean, was NAMI involved early in the planning process for this shelter? We were. We, we became involved right around the August timeframe. And we really helped them shape based on our experience with working with individuals who are experiencing homelessness, especially in our clubhouse in that area, kind of what was going to be needed. Case management services was, was going to be number one in particular, which is not always something that's involved in shelter programs, especially for temporary shelters. But we felt very strong that if we want to have success in getting these ladies into other types of permanent housing that we would have to have that component and the city listened. You know, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria has made the lack of housing a major focus for his administration and and recently declared that, quote, housing ends homelessness. So how does mental health then play a role in homelessness? And, And do you think we talk about mental health enough in conversations about homelessness? Oh, we don't talk about it enough. Many times, as you stated before, just the experience of being homelessness is very traumatic for many individuals. So it might just be an episodic period of mental illness they may be experiencing because of what they have been going through. Or many of our homeless individuals do have what's called SMI, serious mental illness, and they just need assistance in getting back on their feet onto a plan of recovery, then therefore can lead into housing and using a housing first model. We truly believe that you have to have roof over your head if you're going to be successful in recovery. You have to have that safe place 
You have to be able to access services, be able to get mail, um, plug in your cell phone so you can call for your doctor's appointment or your therapy appointment, whatever that may look like for you. So it, it really is a kind of a full circle of talking about mental illness, realizing that individuals who are, are, are unhoused neighbors may have serious mental illness or be experiencing episodic mental illness based on their experiences that they're having right now. So that component of healing the, the mind and the body really do go hand in hand. How can the instability of, of housing and uh, living on the streets be a trigger for those who experience mental illness? Oh gosh, just um, it can be a trigger just from a, a, basically a fear factor, I would like to say, when you are not sure where your next meal is going to come from, um, where you're going to use a restroom, that's really stress producing and anxiety producing, which may then, you know, unfortunately trigger an, a larger mental health condition or just feelings of despair and no hope. And that's one thing we don't want people to lose is hope. There's always hope out there that we can help you with your strength-based decision-making, shared decision-making to get back into a place of safety and housing. And so then talk a bit more about how simply having a shelter and having uh, providers who are aware of mental health issues is helpful in this process. It's very helpful because of that lived experience component. When somebody can say, I've been where you've been, and this is where I am now. So there is hope. There is the ability to have this just be temporary for you. Let's go ahead and work on this together. And having the person being seen as a person, we often dehumanize individuals who are living on the street, especially if they have a mental illness and what we call a co-occurring disorder. So they have a substance use disorder as well. So we see them as people. We see where they are in this moment in time. This may not have how they've been their entire lives. This may not have they have been a year or two years ago, but this is something they're experiencing now. So we'll meet them where they are and we'll work that process with them to get them to a place that they would like to be. I've been speaking with Catherine Nicario, CEO of NAMI of San Diego and Imperial Counties. Catherine, thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diego is changing course dramatically on how it handles the ticketing. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. And towing of vehicles after a recent audit found what many probably suspected that it disproportionately affected low-income and other vulnerable people. And ultimately, the policy cost the city money. District 3 Councilmember Stephen Whitburn is spearheading these changes and joins us now to talk about them. Welcome, Councilmember Whitburn. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So can you tell us what prompted the city to look into this? Well, I heard from too many people over the years, uh, hardworking people who were struggling to pay the bills, who got behind on their parking tickets or were late in renewing their vehicle registration. Uh, and because they were late, the city towed their vehicle. Uh, and when the city does that, the vehicle goes to an impound yard. Uh, and to get your car out of the impound yard, you have to pay the towing fee and the impound fee. You have to pay uh, all the costs of the fines that you originally may have struggled uh, to pay to begin with. And these costs continue to go up. And for many people, uh, they simply can't afford to get their car out of the impound because it's invariably hundreds of dollars. And you know what happens if you can't get your car out of the impound? It is sold to the highest bidder, and many, many people lose their cars this way. Hmm. What did the audit released in November show? The audit released in November showed that the police department is doing a good job of overseeing the towing program. Uh, but what it found was that the program has a disproportionately negative impact on lower income people for the specific kinds of tows that tend to uh, impact people because they may have trouble paying the bills. And those three kinds are uh, late vehicle registrations, uh, having five or more parking tickets that are unpaid, uh, and 72-hour violations. Uh, the studies have shown that Toes for those three kinds of violations uh, are often called poverty toes or disproportionate impact toes because of the people they most profoundly impact. When a car is towed and it's then sold to the highest bidder, who gets that money? When the car is sold, the first amount of money goes to pay the impound fee for the storage fees that it charges. So the impound uh, company is paid first. Uh, then if there is money left over, uh, it goes to the city uh, to pay for the towing company uh, and pay for the dispatch uh, services. Uh, ultimately, what the, impound, what the uh, audit found was that the city loses money on this program because it tends not to collect enough of those fees to cover its costs in executing the program. In fact, on an annual basis, the city loses a million and a half dollars uh, through this program. Mm. And is that pretty much the only way the city loses money uh, when it comes to towing cars? The city loses money uh, when it comes to towing cars primarily through the sale of vehicles that don't recoup uh, enough money to pay for the city's costs. So, yes, it is these vehicles that are towed uh, and then sold off uh, that results in the city losing the most money. Hmm. You know, is consideration ever given when, say, someone's car is also their home? There are different laws that apply to that. Uh, the city has a vehicle habitation ordinance, but that's separate. Um, what I am focused on entirely is the toes for the three types of uh, violations that disproportionately in-cap uh, income, low-income people. And yes, there are individuals who may be living in their cars uh, in those circumstances. Uh, but this uh, audit, uh, the work that I am doing is targeted to anybody who may lose their vehicle because it was towed for one of these three disproportionate impact tows. You know, the new policy isn't in place yet, but you're working on the details. Is that right? 
That's right. Um, I uh, have expressed to my council colleagues uh, my belief that we are hurting people uh, by taking away their vehicles uh, in a disproportionate way and that it needs to be corrected. And what I have heard from my colleagues is they think that the system needs to change as well. So the city council has tasked uh, me with uh, working with city staff and other stakeholders to identify a more equitable and reasonable way to enforce the parking regulations uh, that doesn't uh, really upend people's lives. And so what are you considering in lieu of ticketing and towing? Well, ticketing, we will continue to do. Uh, This is only about the towing aspect. We do need parking regulations in the city of San Diego, and we need to enforce those regulations. Uh, So it is perfectly appropriate to ticket a car for an expired registration or for having too many parking tickets that are unpaid or for being parked in a space for uh, too long. That's fine. Uh, Where you get the real disproportionate impact is when you tow. Uh, and then people end up losing their cars. So I will be uh, working to find a way where we can continue to enforce the law, uh, but we won't tow vehicles for those specific purposes. Now, what else may be involved uh, in that has to be worked out yet, but I don't think that we should be towing vehicles uh, uh, of, of people who are uh, having difficulties paying the bills in such a way that they lose their vehicle, because if somebody loses their vehicle, then uh, they may have difficulty getting to work. If they uh, can't get to work and lose their job, they may have trouble paying the rent. Uh, And if they lose their apartment, then they're suddenly part of the homeless population that we're spending tens and thousands of dollars to get back into housing. So uh, towing somebody's car in such a way that they lose it uh, is a self-defeating proposition for the city of San Diego. Are you considering maybe then boots on cars instead of towing? And then uh, in terms of of parking tickets, maybe uh, payment plans or something like that? Everything is on the table. Um, Some cities have successfully used the boot, uh, which immobilizes a vehicle so that it can't be uh, uh, driven away until the situation is addressed. Uh, Typically, the cost to remove a boot is significantly less uh, than the cost Uh, to pay off a tow at an impound. Um, It does immobilize a vehicle. It does restrict a person from being able to get to work. Uh, So I do have concerns about uh, hindering people's access to their employment. Um, Payment plans are uh, certainly another option. Now, the city actually has a payment plan in place uh, for people who are struggling to pay their parking tickets. But I have found that not enough people know about that and not enough people have taken advantage of that. Uh, So if we want to continue to make that a part of the solution, we'll have to ensure that people who are struggling to pay their bills uh, get informed and are aware of how to take advantage of that program. Has there been any pushback on this? Is the SDPD on board? Uh, We have worked closely with the San Diego Police Department. In fact, they were incredibly helpful uh, with the audit, provided a lot of information uh, to the audit. Uh, We will be working closely with them as we identify possible solutions. So it's a little bit uh, too early to say what their position on that will be. Uh, but uh, we hope to work with the, uh, the police department and other stakeholders to find a solution that everybody can live with. 
I've been speaking with District 3 Council Member Stephen Whitburn. Stephen, thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. About a half dozen states are trying something new to attract recruits into the National Guard. They're paying finders fees to people who help bring in new troops. Some National Guard leaders want to roll out a similar program of referral bonuses nationwide. Desiree Diorio reports for the American Homefront Project. The National Guard came up 9,000 troops short of its recruitment goal last fiscal year. More than half the states missed their goals by 40 percent or more, according to the National Guard Bureau, the federal office that oversees the state guards. To bridge the gap, some states have resorted to paying out referral bonuses to non-recruiters, finders fees. Captain Michael Arkovich explains how the program works in Vermont. It amounts to a $1,000 payment if a recruiting assistant, as they're called, enlists anybody into the Guard, basically from the connection all the way up to initial entry training. The recruiting assistants are not full-time recruiters, but they do have to be affiliated with the Vermont National Guard. Active or retired troops can bring in leads, and so can the Guard's civilian employees. We have vacancies to fill, and having everybody contribute, or at least have a program that offers incentives for everybody to contribute, is value-added. Arkovich says the program has brought in 69 leads so far and paid out more than $50,000 in bonuses. He says localized oversight protects it from fraud and abuse. The recruiter is a check and balance. The recruiting battalion has a check and balance. And the payments are run through the Vermont Military Department. The Virginia National Guard has a similar bonus referral program, except any Virginian can get a finder's fee up to $750, whether they're a member of the Guard or not. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Nivens commands the Virginia National Guard Recruiting and Retention Battalion. He says six people have signed up to refer recruits since the program launched in September, and they've generated a handful of leads so far. A nice paycheck for referring someone to our organization. We're looking forward to more success as we go forward. A federal-level finder's fee program used to exist. It was called the Guard Recruiting Assistance Program, and it brought in 130,000 new recruits from 2005 through 2012. But the Pentagon shut it down after an investigation revealed millions of dollars in fraudulent payments, though some of those who were accused of abusing the program deny any wrongdoing. Despite the program's troubled past, senior leaders say they might bring it back. General Daniel Hokinson is the head of the National Guard Bureau. By putting in the right checks and balances in place, we could really help make every single guardsman a recruiter by paying them a bonus for anybody that they bring into the organization. At a roundtable discussion in September, Hokinson said a reboot would require careful planning to eliminate any opportunity for fraud. But at the end of the day, the program was a success. Obviously, there were lessons learned that we would definitely want to incorporate. We would want to basically have a firm set of rules and orders and really set the terms and conditions. The Vermont and Virginia Guards say their programs protect against fraud because they operate on a much smaller scale with multiple layers of hands-on oversight. I'm Desiree DiOrio on Long Island. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Jason Magabo Perez is San Diego's new poet laureate. He's the author of two hybrid poetry collections and has another in the works. A graduate of UC San Diego, he is now director of the Ethnic Studies Program at Cal State San Marcos. Perez spoke with Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino about his role as poet laureate. You made your debut as Poet Laureate at the State of the City Address earlier this month with a poem titled, We Draft Work Songs for This City. I'm hoping we could start by having you read a selection from that poem. Sure, sure. We draft work songs for this city. Whenever the surrender of this quiet is typhoon enough, we draft work songs for this city. Mighty we of rough draft futures, we of protest chant and scrapyard syntax, we work song in tin, drum, glottal syllables of distant motherlands. We draft litanies at every streetlight altar. We draft verse on napkins and reused plastic grocery bags. We, raw material literatures, distillation of after dreams, swap meet philosophers. We, whose hands wash sky, who grow gardens and gardens against worry. We whose mighty ache remakes history. Thank you, Jason. That was beautiful. Can you tell us more about that poem? What does it mean to you, and why did you choose that for the State of the City Address? It's actually a a bit of a remix and a sort of re-edit, revise, repurpose, recycle from a series of writings coming from my forthcoming book. I really wanted to share my love with the city. And so the longer version of that poem references three general areas where I lived in San Diego for a good amount of time. But I think perhaps most importantly, demonstrating my solidarity and love for the workers. I was raised by workers, you know, blue collar workers. I know we're all workers, but wanting to put that frame in the poem and share that with working people. So I understand you first became interested in poetry as a college student. What was that introduction like? Yeah, I, you know, I was a college student at UCSD, an undergraduate student, and I ultimately was drawn to spoken word. Uh, I think that, you know, my, my relationship to literature, my relationship to literature and English classes was not always the best. I didn't know it was because I didn't feel represented in the literature we were reading. Uh, but I think perhaps even much more deeply, I didn't feel I had a relationship an intimate or healthy relationship with my own sort of way of, of how I think about myself and, and and express myself. And so when I saw folks, you know, doing spoken word, friends like my my dear friend, the late uh, Penai feminist poet Joy De La Cruz doing poetry on stage, or, or one of my best friends, uh, VJ Jennings doing poetry on the stage, it really helped me come to terms with, with how I felt about literature. And 
you know, I ended up linking up with them and building community and really gravitating towards poetry. But I think that that, that came after, you know, the, the community building and the activist work that we were doing, right? And so it sort of became a, a place where we can gather and, and where we can process our thinking, our feelings and make sense of the world. And, and poetry happened to the, be the medium that was really available to us. Well, you touch on it a little bit. You describe yourself as an underperforming English writer throughout high school and college. <laughs> I'm curious yeah. why you chose this as a characterization for yourself. Did you have to overcome any challenges or even discouragement as you got far along in this profession? I think it was a lot of internalized tension. You know, I come from an immigrant family. Both of my parents immigrated from the Philippines. The U.S. colonization of the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, you know, brought English or, or forced English upon the Filipino peoples. Um, and so my parents were, it wasn't as if they weren't fluent in English, but they would often speak to us in Tagalog or, or more prominently another language in the Philippines, Ilocano. You know, I grew up here in Southern California. And so, you know, I heard a lot of Spanish, a lot of barrio Spanish, right? a lot of different sorts of languages. But None of that necessarily was translating into my educational, my formal educational space. And so I was not aware of literature that was written for folks like me or our communities, our families. I was not aware of that history. And once I found that history, I felt, you know, I could give myself permission to, to explore this and really find myself in language, right? And to, to be able to develop my my own sensibilities, my own aesthetics, and my own sense of self, right? And I think that, I, I think uh, I didn't have that uh, confidence or I didn't feel empowered to work with language or to express myself in this way, uh, really, in, until that those moments in college where I started out and, and sort of was experimenting. And then even much later, I think I, I, I felt much more comfortable and, 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 and empowered with language when I became a teacher after I studied this, right after I did my MFA, right? It is a lifelong relationship for me figuring out what language means to me and how it's, you know, how I want to sort of play with it and, and, and craft it in order to make sense of the world. Well, I want to talk more about your, your upbringing. Your personal family history has had a profound effect on your work, specifically when your mother, Leonora Perez, was framed by the FBI in the 70s. Can you tell us more about your mother's story and, and how that's influenced your work? Sure. I often sort of share this story and drop some details. And, and it's such a long story to talk about. It's, it's sort of my life's work to really write about this story and figure out different ways to explore it in a way that's that's careful and responsible and accountable to my mother, to the other Filipino nurse, to that history, to our communities. Uh, but my mother and, and another nurse were framed by the FBI for murder. A series of murders had happened while they were nurses at the Ann Arbor Veterans Hospital Administration. Patients were suffering breathing arrests. The FBI eventually came in to investigate through about a million dollars at the time uh, at the investigation, and they ended up pinning it on my mother and another nurse, right? And so my mother had pretty freshly immigrated. She had immigrated in 1972, um, and this was in 1975. This all happened before I was born. We kept migrating west because of the trauma from this particular historical moment. I think that, you know, as, as some of that family history crept into some of our conversations, I think that my relationship to institutions, formal institutions, um, has, has been shaped with a suspicion, always a caution uh, because of what happened to my mother and my relationship to the English language because she was persecuted, saw an immigrant having a thick accent, having 
uh, a way of expressing herself that was not understood or heard in the courtroom by jurors or the judge or the prosecutors or whatever. I think a lot of that has shaped what my interest is in coming back to our communities, coming back to our families and trying to sort of tell our stories through the language the languages that feel most empowering to us. Well, as Jason, as you mentioned, you're not just San Diego's poet laureate. You you also teach. You're the director of the Ethnic Studies Department at Cal State San Marcos. You talk about a lot about using past trauma and, and your own history informing your work. How do you use your experience to help students use writing as a tool of empowerment? Yeah, I you know I think that writing can offer a lot uh, to students who are searching for a way to sort of process through some of the things that they might have experienced in their lived experience. That could be trauma, that could be any sort of affect or feeling or experience. It could be joy, right? It could be a kind of tenderness and care. You know, whatever students feel they need to articulate, I try to, you know, offer them tools to use poetry, poetic tools and devices that help them process, right? And and if they if they feel comfortable, safe and feel compelled to to see poetry as something that's meaningful to their lives. I don't expect it to be, right? I would love for everybody to read poetry. I would love for everybody to write poetry. But but again, I think for me, what comes first is community, right? And so whatever those tools of expression, articulation, and reflection are for, for students and for our community members, right? Um, I'm, I'm hoping that w- whatever those are, that they find those and they're able to get those, right? And, and if poetry is one of them, that's awesome. And you know, I think I'm here to really share what I've learned over the years as a, as a community organizer, as a, as a poet, as, a, as an educator, as a scholar, right? Hoping to, to demystify poetry a little bit and say, hey, there's a place for all of us here. There are poets and there are poems and there's a long history of imaginative language from all of our communities. There's a long history of, of creative writers and, and artists who are making work for us, for directly for our communities. And I want to be able to let students know that. And I, I try to do that as much as I can. Well, Jason, you said earlier you, you want to get more people to read poetry, and your role as poet laureate will also include cultivating relationships with the community and telling stories across San Diego. How do you hope to make poetry more accessible through this work? Yeah, I think that there's actually a lot of, of great movers and shakers, a lot of great community organizers and poetry communities in San Diego. I think, you know, hopefully getting folks to workshops and getting folks to reading groups where we don't not only share our own poetry, but perhaps spend time with someone's poetry book. I think we have a very vibrant community of poets here in San Diego. I, I consider myself a part of, of some of those communities. And so I think linking with them and, and connecting with them and hopefully collaborating to reach out to the community. And by community, I, I'm thinking about things intergenerationally, I'm also thinking about definitely paying some attention to the youth and, and young people who I think have a lot to say and a lot to teach us. It's been difficult, you know, during this pandemic to be together. It's difficult to to convene with, you know, this sort of ongoing violence in, in many of our communities, actual, you know, gun violence. And, and so I think trying to figure out safe spaces where we can you know, share our humanity and extend grace and dignity to each other. I think that the position really, I hope, right, affords me that that opportunity to facilitate those spaces, not as a leader, right, but just as a sort of 
as a server, right? As someone serving the community, that's what I really see this position to be. And that was San Diego Poet Laureate Jason Magabo Perez speaking with KPBS Midday Edition producer Harrison Patino.